a military coup in Myanmar, repeated assaults on voting rights in the United States, and a democracy in peril in Hong Kong. These are just some of many recent world events that highlight the importance of protecting and learning about democracy, starting with the right to vote. In Canada, the right to vote is the result of a long journey led by activists, citizens, and politicians alike. Today, under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, all Canadian citizens have the basic right to vote in federal, provincial, and municipal elections. To safeguard this principle, the Parliament of Canada cannot take away or interfere with voting rights. That's why our elections are conducted by a non-partisan agency. Last year, Elections Canada, one of the world's first independent electoral agencies, celebrated its 100-year anniversary. This article summarizes the incredibly tumultuous journey that led to every Canadian having the fundamental right to cast a ballot. My name is Guillaume Huppé, and I hope you enjoy this monthly read. Long before the arrival of Europeans and the first civil election, participatory democracies existed in North America. The Haudenosaunee Confederacy is a prime example. It originally consisted of five Aboriginal nations, the Seneca, Cayuga, Oneida, Onadaga, and Mohawk. It later became known as the Six Nations when the Tuscarora joined the Confederacy in the early 18th century. To this day, the Haudenosaunee Grand Council of Chiefs meets to direct their national policies, making it one of the oldest democracies in the world. Other examples of government established before the arrival of Europeans include the Blackfoot Confederacy and the Mi'kmaq Grand Council. The first civil election in Canada's history took place in New France on the 21st of July, 1647. At the time, the French colony was ruled by Louis XIV of France. Every year, residents of Quebec City Montreal and Trois-Rivières elected syndics to a colonial council in charge of managing the colony. Syndics did not hold political power and could not influence policies under the autocratic rule of an absolute monarchy. Instead, they acted in an advisory capacity and as contact points between residents and the council. The Provincial Parliament of Nova Scotia is Canada's oldest legislative assembly. The 22 elected members met for the first time in Halifax on the 2nd of October, 1758, following a summer election. The right to vote was exclusively reserved to Protestant British males over 21 who owned property. If these criteria seem limited today, this was a remarkable achievement for the mid-18th century. Just like that, Canadian parliamentary government was born. The Constitutional Act of 1791 split Canadian territory into two colonies, Lower Canada, 
mostly French-speaking, and Upper Canada, mostly English-speaking. The first election campaign in Lower Canada was held the following year in 1792. Anyone over 21 who owned sufficient property had the right to vote. This notably included women. Of 50 seats, 34 were held by French-speaking members and 16 by English-speaking members, launching a long tradition of bilingualism in Canadian politics. On the 1st of August, 1834, after receiving royal assent, the Slavery Abolition Act took effect in most British colonies. The act freed 800,000 African slaves in the Caribbean, South Africa, as well as a small number in Canada. At once, black people in Canada were considered British subjects. In theory, a black man who owned some land now had the right to vote. In practice, many did not cast their ballot due to widespread discrimination and acts of racism at polling stations. In the mid-19th century, Upper and Lower Canada merged to become the province of Canada. On the 1st of May, 1849, the reform government successfully consolidated electoral laws explicitly prohibiting women from voting. In 1857, the province of Canada passed the Gradual Civilization Act in an attempt to assimilate indigenous people. Indigenous men who voluntarily renounced their treaty rights would be assigned land for homesteading and would gain the right to vote. Efforts to assimilate indigenous people in Canada were always met with resistance. In fact, only one person agreed to the conditions of this act. In 1867, the colonies of Canada, Nova Scotia, and New Brunswick were united into one confederation called the Dominion of Canada. The same year, the first election post-confederation was held. Men over the age of 21 who met property qualifications and who were British subjects had the right to vote. Because no federal election laws existed to elect the first Dominion Parliament, additional conditions applied according to provincial electoral laws. For instance, residents of Ontario and New Brunswick also had to meet annual income requirements. After joining the Confederation, British Columbia demanded that no Chinese workers be hired to build the Canadian Pacific Railway, a transcontinental railway connecting the Dominion to its new province in the West. The Canadian government refused. In response, the British Columbia Legislative Assembly passed a law in 1872 prohibiting Chinese Canadians from being hired on public works. The law also explicitly banned them from voting even though Chinese Canadians formed the majority of voters in some electoral districts. On the 12th of April, 1876, the Federal Indian Act came into power. The act aimed to assimilate indigenous people into Euro-Canadian society. 
It loomed large, consolidating a number of colonial laws. With regards to voting rights, the act reiterated that status Indians must voluntarily give up their status and treaty rights to vote in federal elections. It also prohibited status Indian women from voting in banned council elections. The impact of the Indian Act on First Nations has been going since it was introduced and led to further atrocities committed against the First Nations, including residential schools. In 1885, the government of the Dominion of Canada successfully passed the Electoral Franchise Act to overrule provinces and impose a single set of voting eligibility criteria for federal elections. The original draft of the law gave some women the right to vote, but in the end, only men who owned qualifying property could cast the ballot. Indigenous people living west of Ontario as well as Chinese Canadians were prohibited from voting. In 1895, more than 20 years after banning Chinese Canadians from voting, the Legislative Assembly of British Columbia expanded the ban to also deny Japanese Canadians the right to vote. On the 13th of June, 1898, the federal government passed a law decentralizing the responsibility to determine the right to vote. This meant that provinces could once again decide who had the right to vote in federal elections. But the federal government specifically prohibited legislatures from disqualifying voters otherwise qualified to vote based on their profession or class. This resulted in Chinese and Japanese Canadians living in British Columbia to gain the right to vote in federal elections, although they remained barred from voting in provincial elections. Federal and provincial government employees in Quebec, Ontario, Manitoba, Nova Scotia, and Prince Edward Island also gained the right to vote. However, despite the provision on discrimination based on profession, the law specifically prohibited judges appointed at the federal level from voting. In 1907, the Legislative Assembly of British Columbia further amended the Provincial Election Act this time denying anyone with origins in South Asia from voting. The year 1916 marks a significant turn for voting rights in Canada. On the 28th of January, women living in Manitoba became the first to gain the right to vote at the provincial level and could now hold provincial office. Women in Saskatchewan and Alberta also gained the right to vote later that year. The suffragette movement played a significant role in securing this victory by building support from farming, labor, and social gospel movements influential in the West. Contrary to eastern and central Canada, western provinces were historically more open to women voting, in part because it was strategic to do so. Adding white women to the electorate would guarantee the displacement of indigenous people in newly colonized parts of Canada. In comparison, women in Quebec only acquired the right to vote in 1940. When Britain declared war on Germany in 1914, all colonies and dominions of the British Empire were automatically enrolled. In 1917, Prime Minister Borden's government 
introduced conscription to strengthen Canadian forces during World War I. French Canadians and other non-British descent Canadians whose loyalty to Britain never materialized strongly opposed compulsory enlistment, fearing that the opposition to conscription would cost him the election. Borden and his government passed the Wartime Elections Act on the 20th of September ahead of the December election. The act was an effort to disenfranchise voters likely opposed to conscription. As such, Canadians who were born in, quote, enemy nations, end quote, lost the right to vote. Conversely, women relatives of Canadian soldiers fighting overseas were naturally more likely to support conscription and therefore were given the right to vote. Although this tactic successfully increased support for Borden, it also resulted in years of declining support for the Conservative Party in Quebec, as well as among ethnic and immigrant groups. 1917 is also a pivotal year as women in Ontario and British Columbia gained the right to vote in provincial elections. British Columbia was the only province to hold a referendum on the matter. Male voters overwhelmingly supported women's suffrage, with 70% of them voting in favor. Following the 1917 election, and once conscription was secured, Borden's union government began to argue that women deserved the right to vote as a result of their contribution to the war effort. On the 24th of May, 1918, women who were citizens of Canada and aged 21 or over were granted the right to vote in federal elections. Still, exclusions based on race and status prohibited some women from voting. For instance, First Nations women had to give up their status and treaty rights to vote. The same year, women in Nova Scotia gained the right to vote in provincial elections. New Brunswick followed the subsequent year and Prince Edward Island in 1922. On the 1st of July, 1920, the Dominion Elections Act replaced the Wartime Elections Act of 1917. Its aim was to centralize logistical operations for federal elections and established the office of chief electoral officer, a position isolated from political pressure that still exists to this day. That's why the act is considered a predecessor of today's Canada Elections Act. The Dominion Elections Act also had an impact on voting rights. For instance, it reinstated the right to vote to many who had lost it as a result of the Act of 1917. On the other hand, the new Act also said that groups banned from voting in provincial elections because of their race would also be excluded from federal elections. This resulted in Chinese, Japanese, and South Asian Canadians living in British Columbia to lose their right to vote in federal elections. In 1924, First Nations veterans of World War I were granted the right to vote in federal elections without losing their status or treaty rights. Notably, this included individuals living on reserves. 1924 also marks the year that the Newfoundland legislature unanimously voted 
to give women the right to vote in provincial elections. In 1931, Japanese-Canadian veterans of World War I who lived in British Columbia were granted the right to vote in provincial elections. Because of the Dominion Elections Act of 1920, they also gained the right to vote in federal elections. In 1934, the Dominion Franchise Act was passed. The act explicitly disqualified Inuit and First Nations individuals from voting in federal elections, with the exception of First Nations veterans of World War I who were granted the right to vote 10 years prior. Quebec was the last province to give women the right to vote in 1940. This delay is in part attributed to the strong influence of the Catholic Church in the province. Early opposition to women's right to vote came from religious figures such as Cardinal Bégin, who once said, quote, Nothing justifies woman's right to vote, neither natural law nor the social interest. End quote. In response, women like Thérèse Casgrain mobilized and created the Ligue des Droits de la Femme, an advocacy group that successfully promoted women's right to vote, as well as significant social and legal reforms. Casgrain later became the first woman to head a political party in Canada. In 1944, First Nations veterans of World War II, as well as their spouses, were granted the right to vote in federal elections without losing their status. This included individuals living on reserves. On the 1st of January, 1947, the Canadian Citizenship Act came into effect. The act redefined Canada's national identity, replacing the notion of British subjects with a new definition of Canadian citizenship. This allowed citizens who were not born in Canada to obtain citizenship under certain conditions and to gain access to the ballot box in federal elections. In the aftermath of World War II, public opinion started to shift. In 1948, Parliament revised the Dominion Elections Act, removing race as a basis for exclusion in federal elections. Even so, status Indians still had to surrender their status to vote. In 1949, status Indians living in British Columbia gained the right to vote in provincial elections. Other provinces gradually followed suit, starting with Manitoba in 1952 and concluding with Quebec in 1969. 1949 also marks the year that Japanese Canadians in British Columbia gained the right to vote in provincial elections. In 1950, the Inuit were granted the right to vote without restrictions. However, in practice, many did not have the opportunity to cast a ballot due to geographic isolation. Ballot boxes were eventually placed in all Inuit communities 12 years later, in time for the election of 1962. Prior to European colonization, 
Indigenous women were active participants in community decision-making, but the Indian Act of 1876 revoked their right to vote in band council elections. In 1951, changes were made to the Act to restore that right. The 1st of July, 1960, marks a milestone for voting rights in Canada. Nearly a century after the Federal Indian Act, status Indians acquired the right to vote in federal elections without losing their status or giving up their treaty rights. On the 7th of September, 1969, the Official Languages Act came into force, making English and French the two official languages of Canada. Under the Act, all federal institutions must provide services in both languages. This includes all services related to federal elections. Starting in the late 1960s, young Canadians formed an increasingly significant group and became more socially and politically involved. They wanted to participate in the democratic process and advocated in favor of lowering the voting age. And it worked. In 1970, Parliament lowered the federal voting age from 21 to 18. The Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms has been a part of Canada's constitution since 1982 and has played a key role in modernizing the country. The Charter guarantees freedom of expression, the right to a democratic government, the right to live and seek work anywhere in Canada, the legal rights of people accused of crimes, the rights of indigenous people, the right to equality, including gender equality, the right to use Canada's official languages, and the right of French or English minorities to an education in their language. It also protects Canadians against the state and minorities against parliamentary majorities. Most fundamentally, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms is a safeguard for our democracy. Since 1982, the highest law in the land guarantees the right to vote to all Canadian citizens. While many of us take our right to vote for granted today, it is important to recognize the sacrifices that were made to arrive at this point. After all, the right to vote remains a global issue. Thank you so much for listening. This article was written by me, Guillaume Huppé, with the contribution of content editor Leah Brown. Read our other monthly articles at medium.com slash at H-U-P-P-E. That's medium.com slash at symbol H-U-P-P-E. Thank you for subscribing to the monthly read, and I'll see you next month.